Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and attendings in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, fourth year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I'm accompanied by two academic otolaryngologists from the University of California in Los Angeles, Dr. Rory Kerr and Dr. Dan Beswick. Dr. Rory Kerr is a fellowship-trained facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon and assistant professor in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery. He earned his medical degree from Eastern Virginia Medical School and completed residency at Cleveland Clinic, followed by fellowship at UCLA. Dr. Dan Beswick is a fellowship-trained rhinologist and skull-based surgeon, assistant professor in residence at UCLA. He earned his medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh and completed residency at Stanford University, followed by fellowship at Oregon Health and Science University. Thank you both for joining me today, and we're excited to listen to the topic of early career academic medicine. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. So um, to start out, Dr. Beswick, do you mind going over your path to otolaryngology and what brought you to the field? I'd be happy to talk about that. Thanks for the question. I uh, entered medical school um, and then sort of looking at different specialties and considering what I wanted to do. Um, And I actually had no intent of becoming a surgeon before I went to medical school. I thought I would uh, end up in a medical subspecialty. But I had really great mentorship and I had a really good early experience um, in uh, surgery that was very positive for me. And so from that, I came to think that I may want to be a surgeon. Um, And then I explored a couple surgical fields, surgical subspecialties, um, and I ended up having uh, great mentorship in otolaryngology. um, And that is the field that I uh, chose and came to select as a career. So that's how I got here. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mentorship can make such a huge difference. Dr. Kerr, do you mind commenting on that path to otolaryngology yeah. as well? Same, same, uh, or at least similar kind of route, I suppose. I came into medical school uncertain of surgery or not. I had very little exposure to head and neck surgery or otolaryngology at all. Um, got incredibly fortunate with timing. I got, was offered a, uh, rotation in surgery first, um, and that kind of sealed the deal on whether or not I would be interested in, you know, surgery or not. But more importantly, I was, uh, luckily enough to, uh, be offered a otolaryngology, uh, two week kind of elective rotation during my surgery. And once I did that, I kind of, uh, knew what I wanted to do, um, sort of fell in love with some head and neck big cases, which is kind of the classic med student route, um, big, cool anatomy, big, cool cases. <laughs> it kind of sucked me in. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people share that love for the head and neck anatomy. So that's great. Um, so thank you both for sharing. And in terms of academic medicine, Dr. Beswick, what drew you towards pursuing a career in academics? Good question. I, um, you know, academics has a lot of different components to it. I think it, can mean a lot of different things for different people. And I think that's that sort of breadth and diversity of the field is one thing that's really good about it and interesting about it. Um, so there's a lot of different paths within academics that one can take. Um, my academic career now focuses on outcomes research. And so I do a variety of outcomes research on rhinology and rhinologic related topics. Um, so for me, you know, I, I enjoy the 
thought process of sort of planning research studies, thinking about investigating sort of outcomes in different treatments and how that might alter either patient selection for a given treatment or might alter the components of a procedure that we offer someone or don't offer someone. And so I, uh, I like it in many ways because of the research um, possibilities that it entails. Um, but there's some other components to academics that are also very exciting, be those educational or otherwise. Um, and so the combination of those things together, for me, makes academics great. Um, you know, in many different types of practice, you also sort of have the clinical component, and that's really nice. I think the thing that I like the most about academics is sort of this diversity where I sort of do some clinical work, I do some research, I get to work with our residents who are all excellent. Um, and so that combination is uh, exciting to me. Sure, that can be a really rewarding pathway to um, to be able to take a project from beginning to end and then continue to develop a research niche. I think that is really attractive to a lot of people interested in academics. So yeah, so in terms of comparing that to private practice, Dr. Kerr, can you comment on some of the differences between the two and what you should be looking for if you're interested in perhaps private practice? Sure. That's uh, again, that's a pretty broad question. So I'll try and pick a few kind of <laughs> things. Um, in a similar vein, I guess to Dr. Beswick, you know, uh, working with trainees, teaching, education, and training was a big thing that drew me to pursue kind of an academic career. And so that's something that you would give up for the most part if you wanted to pursue private. So that's kind of a key component for people to kind of realize as they go through their decision tree is, is how much of that do they wish to do on a day-to-day -day basis? If they, you know, love being a chief resident and working with the juniors and, and mm -hmm. kind of teaching and things like that, then maybe going into private practice or at least a small practice somewhere might not be the right fit for them. Um, but that's not also true in other ways. You know, there are mid-levels that uh, will work in private practice setting who can be can be fulfilling in that education niche as well as other physicians and nurses and such. So that's just one component. Um, I find that many people who pursue uh, academic medicine really kind of want to be on the sort of forefront of trying new surgeries or developing new techniques or really complex cases doing difficult things. Um, and that doesn't necessarily appeal to everybody. Um, there's uh, certainly a passion for doing what you do well and treating lots of people and helping lots of people in your community um, versus, you know, maybe helping fewer people, but doing more uh, groundbreaking and more kind of uh, forefront sort of things. So uh, small town feel, you know, mm -hmm. private practice versus big academic setting. Um, they both have their appeal for sure. Sure, sure. Um, I think that coming from a medical student perspective, I think that's really helpful to think about the bigger picture and how you kind of see yourself in 10 years. You know, medical students get asked all the time, what, how, where do you see yourself in 10 years? So that is really helpful in creating that 10 year picture. And in terms of like uh, students applying to the field, is there a, um, a type of program that you should be looking for if you're, if you're going into academics versus private practice? Dr. Beswick, if you can comment on that. Oh, I think there's a lot of great programs out there. I think 
virtually all or the vast majority of the otolaryngology training programs in the U.S. are excellent. And, you know, if I were looking for a program from a, a training perspective, I would certainly want excellent clinical training, sort of breadth and depth in all areas of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. Um, if I was interested in, in sort of perhaps pursuing academics or a research career after that, you know, I would want some demonstrated ability of the program uh, where they show how their residents are engaged in research during their training. In some ways, one could look at that as sort of how much the residents work with some of the faculty and what they produce. And then if there's sort of some dedicated research blocks. Um, and then, you know, residency is really important. And one of the biggest goals of residency is to sort of fully train you and get you to the next step where you can be independent and functioning autonomously. And so I think another important thing to look at when you're considering residency programs is what sort of, where are their, where do their graduates go and what are they doing? And um, everybody has different reasons for choosing a path within otolaryngology that's specific to them. But if you sort of look at a bit of what the other programs or the, the programs recent graduates have done, that can usually give a sense of uh, the type of training that might be offered there. But I think that, you know, virtually all, the vast majority of programs in our country really provide excellent clinical training um, from a clinical perspective. Absolutely. And in terms of uh, job outlooks after residency, what personal academic and administrative goals should you consider before your first job, Dr. Kerr? Ooh, good question. Entirely <laughs> depends on whether you're, you're kind of hunting for that prestigious academic place. Um, or looking to go into private practice or, you know, trying to pursue a fellowship. So I think a lot of people consider the fellowship year their first job, quote unquote, out of uh, residency. And so mm -hmm. if you see yourself uh, wanting to kind of pursue a subspecialty career, um, then you should be setting yourself up for that, you know, by third year, you know, fourth year at the latest, because that's when we apply. But, you know, even as a two thinking about, you know, at least some smaller research projects or even some case studies or something like that. And maybe in the, in the subspecialty that you think you might be interested in, mm -hmm. you know, start those things early. Cause um, you know, a couple of publications here or there, even if they're not necessarily in the subspecialty early on um, kind of set you up for success a little bit later on. And some of those mentor mentee relationships to do the research project really grow into something that lands you your first job. Um, that's certainly uh, a big part of residency and a big part of having mentors is, is making those phone calls or hearing about those jobs or hearing about those openings that come up. What about um, some personal goals that should be considered? Sure. I'll answer it twofold. I think from a fellowship standpoint, if, if, we're, teach, if we're saying that that's our first job, I think the fellowship should be picked um, almost exclusively based on the training uh, that it offers you. So a lot of people go, oh, well, I don't want to do fellowship in this part of the country or I don't want to do fellowship in that part of the country. Um, I would argue against that. I would say go to the fellowship that you think best suits your training needs or your training desires. If you really want to be uh, the best, you know, head and neck robotic surgeon, then go to a fellowship that does the best robotics or, you know, some, I'm sure Dr. Bezik would agree for skull based stuff. If you want to be a really, really good <clears throat> skull based surgeon, you should pick a fellowship that has the best skull base versus, you know, inflammatory sinus or something like that. So, um, that would be my first thing. If you're talking about 
first careers out of uh, fellowship or even first careers out of uh, residency, I think the important thing to know is that very few people stay in their first job uh, long term. So um, mm-hmm. it's okay to switch careers, uh, academic or private. Um, it is okay to switch jobs. Most a vast majority of people will switch careers or switch um, switch practices or switch jobs at least once or twice in their career. So mm-hmm. um, don't be afraid to try something new um, early on. Um, if you think you might be interested in a certain part of the country, you know, don't <clears throat> explore it and, and see what's out there because it's okay to switch jobs. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And I think that that'll be very helpful to people looking for their first job as well. Um, Dr. Beswick, what questions should uh, people looking for their first job pose to potential employers when considering a position? That is a broad question. Uh, so it's, I would say, you know, after you've done all the training, you know, you have preferences. If you have a, a partner or a spouse, that person may have preferences, geographic or otherwise. And so, you know, it can be, uh, for me, at least, I was sort of quite a stressful time uh, working on my first academic position or my first position post-training. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's an interesting question. And I think that for a lot of people that causes, um, at least for me, it caused a fair amount of stress. So, mm-hmm. you know, some questions are sort of logistical, like, are you going to have the appropriate type of practice that you want to focus on? Meaning if you did a fellowship, can you stay and, and see sort of clinical volume just within that fellowship area? Mm-hmm. Or do you have to go into other subspecialties or, or general rhinology? Um, some questions sort of are financial, and those are sort of always awkward to ask, but are always probably better to ask reasonably towards the early end of the job process. Um, some questions sort of relate to uh, what your life will be like, what's sort of the breakdown of your time, how much clinical time will you have, will you have protected or dedicated research time, how much call is there, things like mm-hmm. that. If I had to give um, one piece of advice on that, what I would say is uh, when you enter that stage, uh, you should talk to somebody who is uh, just a few years older than you, like maybe one or two years older than you, and who has just done that process. Um, and that is probably that person will have gone through the same experience or a very similar experience more recently and, uh, or quite recently, and they'll be able to advise you specifically. So if you have a close friend who's a year or two or three older, who's just done that, um, Mm -hmm. I have found that personally very helpful when I've been in that situation. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think those questions are really helpful in a general perspective too, looking at programs as well. So overall, I think this advice has been very useful from going to academic medicine and what keeps you satisfied there and then finding your right fit for your first job. I agree with, I agree with Dr. Beswick. Pick a mentor who's a couple years above you, who's gone through the most recent things. If you can, even in your own subspecialty, pick one, but then also pick one who's maybe 10 or 15 years into their career, ideally at kind of like the peak, sort of where you see yourself in 10 or 15 years, kind of really hitting your career, your peak career. Um, those are really interesting discussions, um, to mm-hmm. have with somebody who's potentially considering like switching locations or changing it up or slowing down or getting busier. It's really helpful to have those kinds of discussions on, wow, okay, this is what a career looks like in 10 years or 15 years. Now that you've gotten your foot in the door and kind of, uh, gotten stuck in it a little bit. 
Sure, sure. That diversity of perspective is always really useful. I've found it to be at least. And um, before we um, end the today's discussion, I just wanted to ask both of you if you have any advice for a rising medical students interested in ENT or any current residents or fellows in training. I'll ask Dr. Beswick first. I think some good ways to get involved are, um, you know, be enthusiastic and, and look for opportunities to get to know and collaborate with some of the faculty and, and the residents. Um, if you're uh, in medical school listening, that can happen in a clinical capacity. You know, you can always shadow in the operating room um, or work on the clinical electives. Um, and then there's often a need for people to get, or often an opportunity for people to get involved in research. And if that's something interesting, then uh, I think that's a worthwhile path as well. Uh, but getting to sort of get to know some of the the older uh, clinicians and, and researchers at your institution can be helpful, um, both to sort of get their perspective. And then, of course, when it comes time to sort of ask for a letter of recommendation or support with your application, things like that. Sure. Dr. Kerr? I agree with Dan, uh, Dr. Beswick, uh, a lot of things. Start out early. Um, if you're, you know, a first or second year medical student and you are happening to listen to this podcast, you're probably already a little bit interested in ENT or etalingology. So, you know, you're probably doing a lot of these things, but even if it's just kind of get out there, if you have an off day or, you know, your other clinical rotation slow, go see what the head and neck surgeons are doing in the OR. You know, they're always doing something. So kind of get your face out there a little bit, get your name out there a little bit, pick up a project or two with the residents. Um, you know, getting in with the residents in a way to that shows that you're helpful and 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 can carry a workload to completion, which I think is important. Um, goes a long way when the, when the rank lists are due and the staff say, oh, did you work with this medical student? How'd they do? And the resident will say, oh, great, I had this project and they finished it all the way and they did a great job. So don't pick up projects if you're not willing to finish them, I think is the second thing I would say about that. And then similarly for residents um, early on in their career, you know, if you think you're interested in a subspecialty, go talk to somebody in that subspecialty at your institution, you know, um, talk to them outside of the OR, you know, when they've got a little bit of time to pick each other's brains, pick maybe one or two mentors even, um, you know, it's okay to have a mentor in different subspecialties before you pick a fellowship. So I definitely had that, you know, I had a few different subspecialties that I was interested in for a long time. Um, and I had mentors in each of them. And we talked a lot about what I wanted in a career and what I wanted to do with my um, surgeries and things like that. And then over time, you kind of hone in or kind of hone down to really one key mentor, um, both your research mentor and your uh, clinical mentor, and both can be uh, very helpful, both inside of work and outside of work. So, and then the final piece of advice I would say is don't forget that um, even though we do work hard through all parts of this, it's important to have a family. Uh, and keep them happy. Thank you so much for that advice. I think it's really nice to hear that you need to take the opportunities that are kind of less less uh, less popular, like going going out in your first and second year of medical school and taking advantage of those things. So I think that will be highly appreciated input. So thank you so much, Dr. Beswick and Dr. Kerr, for joining me today to discuss the topic of early career academic medicine. Any final thoughts? I have one, I have one other comment. Um, 
I remember when I was a medical student and I really kind of wanted to try and get my foot in the door and I wanted to kind of thing. And it was always really incredibly intimidating to reach out to people. Um, but just don't forget that these physicians, even if they're 10, 15 years into their career, they all started at the same place. They all started with the same kind of uh, hesitation to reach out um, an email uh, to an attending or, or trying to introduce yourself as you see them in the hospital saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a med student. I would love to come shadow you. I'm interested in this career. You know, uh, even if it's intimidating, I promise you, they, uh, uh, they're not intimidating on the other side. They, they remember just how it was. So, um, they're excited to work with medical students. They're excited to be academic physicians, uh, teaching. So, and even private practice guys, they're, uh, guys and girls, private practice physicians are thrilled to have people come shadow them. So even if it's intimidating, send that email, you'll be surprised what doors open. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I think that's great advice and one that I'll be taking as well. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you to the listeners for making it to the end of this episode of Sundays with Saima. Tune in next week for the next episode.